You are listening to the Magic Drop Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Cornish, actor, author, and creator. Join me on this journey of growth, joy, and love. I'm here to bring you dope content to expand your mindset and uplift your energy. Why? Because it's your epic life. Today on the potty, I have Kirsten Wenborn. Kirsten is a clinical nutritionist with a special interest in mental health. She works with those dealing with neurobehavioral conditions, such as ADHD and ASD, as well as mood-related issues, including anxiety and depression. Kirsten takes a holistic approach in finding underlying causes of imbalances, uses targeted nutrient therapy, and incorporates intuitive self-care practices to support her clients. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands we meet on today. I'd like to pay my respects to my elders past and present. Also, a quick shout out to ACAST for hosting this potty. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Magic Drop podcast. So today we have an epic episode planned for you. We're going to be chatting about some things like functional nutrition, mood, diet culture, and intuitive eating. Kirsten, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast, Izzy. It's a pleasure to be here today. I've been working with Kirsten for a few years now and I've absolutely loved the journey and that's why I was super excited to get her on the show. So I thought we'd dive straight in and I guess my first question would be, what is functional nutrition? Okay, so functional nutrition, it's it's really about taking a holistic approach to a person's diet. It sits under functional medicine. So what functional medicine is, it's we're identifying and understanding and trying to resolve the root cause of what's going on for that person. So it's not just considering their diet, but it's considering their lifestyle as well. So how active they are, what their stress levels are like, are they dealing with any chronic disease? So it's just recognizing all of those things as well as what they're eating. It's also um, recognizing that one diet doesn't actually work for all people. So while the nutritional concepts are the same across the board, so eat less processed foods, eat more whole foods, eat more plants, eat good fats, all of those concepts usually are across the board. It's about looking at the person who's sitting in front of you. So what's actually going on for them? Because not all good food is good for all people. So if someone's dealing with a histamine intolerance or any sort of sensitivities, even good foods aren't going to be good for them. So it's a personalized approach. Yeah, interesting. And what are some of the conditions where you see improvements using functional nutrition? In my practice, I'm generally looking um, looking after people who have got mental health issues. So anyone who is dealing with anything neurological, anything that's going on neurologically for them. So it's anyone from uh, if someone's suffering with low mood or anxiety or stress, right through to people who are dealing with more complex conditions such as ADHD and ASD, which is autism spectrum disorder. So if mood is disturbed when the neurotransmitters are being produced, it's because there's deficiency in the diet or there's environmental factors or stress that's contributing to those neurotransmitters not being 
produced as optimally as they could be. So we know that in ADHD, for instance, highly processed food and food sensitivities, nutritional deficiencies all play a role. And it's widely known that sugar and additives can set these individuals off. But if they've not got the nutrition, the what's required in their diet to make the neurotransmitters, then that's also going to have a knock-on effect as well. So they need those vitamins and the nutrients. So you need amino acids, you need vitamins, you need minerals, and they all come together to produce the neurotransmitters. And if something's lacking in the diet or if they're not absorbing those nutrients, then they're going to have disturbances with their mood. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you think that if someone had mental health issues or mood issues, they their first call would be going to a psychologist or going to see their GP. And it's so interesting the way that our food and our imbalances can really affect our mood. And functional nutrition is a great place to start because as well, if we're going to see someone but our diet isn't right for our body or we're not enhancing our mood with food, it can make it very difficult to then get the benefits from seeing a psychologist. So I guess, yeah, it is like you said, all about holistic health and diet just plays such a big part. It does. And I often, I really love to work as part of a team with GPs or with specialists because it really has to be a team approach. And I often will have clients that will come to me and they've already had a diagnosis. They've been to see a psychologist. They've been to see their GP. They've been told they've got depression or anxiety, but they, before they go down the path of medication and just to say there's nothing wrong with taking medication, but they might like to try some natural therapies first and that's where I can help to support them. And even if they do take medication, that's completely okay and it's up to the individual and we can still support whilst they're taking that action also. So it's really a team approach and I like, you know, obviously you've got to look at the big picture. So what's going on in their gut? There's so much we can do with functional nutrition. We can look at their gut, we can improve their gut, we can look at why they're having nutrient deficiencies. So why aren't they making those neurotransmitters. And really, I like to look at it as being a bit of a detective. So it's detective work. So you're always asking, why is that happening? Why is that not happening? What's going on for the individual who's sitting in front of you? Yeah. And I know in my history and my experience as well, when I got diagnosed with ADHD, I then took a look back at some other testing that I had done. And in one of my gut tests, I had low bifidobiotic. And then I went back to research and there's a correlation between low bifidobiotic and ADHD symptoms. And I was like, this is so interesting the way that like different things in my body can make my ADHD symptoms worse or better and then also optimizing my health with different vitamins and things like that and for me when I was working with you I went on the low histamine diet and that was really beneficial for me but then someone like my partner he can eat histamines and he's fine so yes yeah speaking about histamines what are histamines so histamines are chemicals that they they naturally occur in most foods And they're also released by the mast cells in our body. So as you said, some people can tolerate plenty of histamines, whereas other people, they just cannot and they will have all sorts of things that will go wrong for them. And histamines do have a purpose in our body. We do need them. They are signaling molecules. So they 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 code and tell our stomach to make stomach acid. They tell our brain to get going in the morning. So you actually 
you need your histamines. It's just histamines need to come in and then you need to be able to get rid of them as well. So that's a problem. And, you know, for yourself and other people who have struggled with, you know, ADHD or just mood issues, it's because the histamines are not being degraded. They're not leaving the body as they should. So that's, again, something that we can we can look at. We can look at why is that happening? There's um, actually, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, there's an enzyme called DAO. So I think we may have talked about it in the past. DAO degrades histamine. So if you're low in DAO, and DAO resides in the in the, um, the, gut, the intestinal mucosa. So if you're low in DAO, you're not going to be able to clear your histamines and therefore histamines can become a problem for you. So it's really about, you can't avoid histamines. You can go on a low histamine diet for a while, but that's not really sustainable because actually histamines are in many foods, in all our good foods as well, in our citrus fruits and lots of spinach, lots of vegetables that are, are good for us. So it's more about having a low histamine di- diet for a period of time but then working out how we can tolerate histamine better. Yeah, interesting. And does flushing out histamines, does that relate to the detoxification system? It does. Yeah, there's there's lots of, well, firstly, there's lots of reasons why histamines um, can become high. So one of them is that. So if you're not detoxifying properly, if your methylation pathways are not working optimally, that can give you problems with degrading histamine. If Again, like I said, if you have excess in the diet, and that includes alcohol too. If you have a dysbiosis with your gut microbes, if you've got SIBO going on, if you've got the, the deficiencies that we've talked about, they're all ways that histamines can get high and then you can, then can cause you a problem systemically. Yeah, and then talking about some kind of histamine symptoms is there any main histamine symptoms that you could share with people in case they're like I'm wondering if histamines are affecting me and I know that's a very a broad thing it's very individual someone would need to you know see a nutritionist or a dietitian maybe to find out more but are there any typical signs or symptoms that could be calling out for a histamine intolerance yes absolutely so like I said it can affect people in different ways um, I said in my practice, because I am looking, I'm dealing with people who are generally having mental health issues. So neurologically, you could be having headaches, migraines, anxiety, depression. If you do have ADHD or any other uh, behavioral issues going on, it's going to exacerbate that. Um, But also it can be in the gut. So gut upset is a common complication or a common complaint. Menstrual pain, a lot of women can have menstrual pain, heavy periods, migraines associated with their cycle. And so actually, I'm not sure if um, you're aware of this or if you remember, we've probably talked about it before, but histamines and estrogen, they have a relationship and they drive one another up. And I'll often say to my clients who are having issues around their cycle, if you seven to 10 days prior to your period starts, really cut back on your histamine foods. So cut back on even the foods you love, you know, good foods, avocados, bananas, anything aged, fermented, cut back on that in the seven to 10 days before your period, because that's going to help you with any premenstrual syndrome, any premenstrual uh, PMDD, because they do have that relationship where histamine will drive estrogen up. So it's it's actually, you can really see a difference if you do reduce those histamine foods. Yeah, I tried that actually and it really worked for me because I get really painful periods. Sometimes they're better and sometimes they're worse. But the last two months, yeah, I really cut out on the histamines again and my periods have been a lot better. I'm just getting like 
a couple of hours worth of pain instead of three days worth of pain at the start of my cycle. So that's really helped me and it's helped me to feel more light and energized in the mornings. Yes. Oh, excellent. That's really good to hear. So histamine foods, I know you just mentioned a few briefly about the fermented foods, banana, avocado. Is there any other histamine, high histamine foods that you can share with us? Uh, yeah, so basically just like you say, anything aged and fermented. So all the foods we love really. So, you know, alcohol and cheese, beautiful cheeses, citrus fruits are high in histamine. A lot of wheat-based products are dried fruit, you know, processed meats, and there's also histamine liberators. So they don't necessarily have a high amount of histamine themselves, but they can liberate the mast cells within the body to release histamine. So that we see that a lot with um, bananas, strawberries, pineapple, eggplants, spinach. When you are putting somebody on a low histamine diet, it can feel restrictive, but I never suggest it for a long period of time because once you're, if you're on such a restrictive diet, then nutrient deficiencies can occur down the track. So it's all about, okay, let's strip them back. Let's have a low histamine diet. And then once we've done that for a period of about a month, we start to trial the histamines back into the diet. And what we find is that while we're working on gut, we work on things like methylation, we work on um, how you can tolerate increasing Dow, which is the enzyme that degrades the histamine. If you get those things all up and running, then you can tolerate more. And as you bring the histamine foods back into your diet, you should be able to tolerate them. And most people have a tolerance level, so it's different for everybody. You might be able to have avocado on toast in the morning for breakfast. You then might be able to have, um, you know, bananas in a fruit salad at lunchtime. But then if you go on to have chocolate or alcohol at night, bang, you're going to get a histamine reaction. So it's about tolerance. Talking about gut health, why can our gut health impact our mood? Okay, so that is a great question. And there has been a lot of research in this area over the past decade. Um, the Human Biome Project, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, they've done lots and lots of research characterising the microbiome and lots of interesting discoveries, even about how our microbes, their genes can impact our health. So as we know, or many people do know, that the gut and the brain, they have, they're connected, they have a biodirectional communication system. So it's often referred to as the gut-brain axis. And when we have things going on in our gut, it will often affect our mood, and that's the reason why. So it's referred to the second brain. I don't know if you've heard that before. But the two are connected by millions and millions of nerves, So, and primarily the vagus nerve. And that's where the nerve signals, they travel along. And it's as I said, it's biodirectional, so they're going up and down. So messaging from the gut is going up to the brain and vice versa. So when you have that gut feeling, that's actual, when you say I've got butterflies in my tummy, it's actually a common illustration of what's really going on. What you can feel in the gut, you, you actually, you can feel it. It's in the brain too. And is gut testing always necessary? Is that something that if people have stomach issues, should they go and get a comprehensive gut test or can you get stool testing, something that's a little bit more affordable to start off with? You're right. It's expensive. So there are some really great tests available, but it costs a lot of money. So when I'm working with somebody through taking their symptoms and a case history and listening to what's going on for that person, I would generally as a first line of treatment, not send somebody off to go get testing because 
like I said, it's expensive. So I would be looking at, okay, your whatever your symptoms, whatever you're telling me, I'm thinking there's something going on in the gut. And as practitioners, we always go to the gut first. If in doubt, go to the gut because what's going on in the gut is causing the issues throughout the body. So we'll, I will look as a first line treatment, as I said, I will look at what's going on with the gut wall. How permeable is that gut wall? Are the gap junctions bigger than they should be? Are they letting food proteins go through into the blood, which is what could be causing some of these neurological disturbances? So I wouldn't test to start with. I would just start working on gut. I'd start asking those questions. And then I would also look at, you know, listening to the to the symptoms. Have they got gas? Have they got bloating? What's actually going on? Is there is there is it possible that the microbes are out of balance? The good and the bad bacteria. So that's where I would start. But if someone is still after sending somebody away and they they go and do all of that work, we might prescribe prebiotics to Im- improve the good bacteria. I might you know give them some inulin to pr- improve the, the lining of the gut wall. If that's been done and there's no change, there is certainly testing that can be done. And one of my favourite tests is the organic acids test, which is it's a review of the organic acid compounds through urine. So what's being excreted is giving us a good picture of what's going on in the body. So that can give us a really great snapshot of good and bad bacteria, any yeasts that are overgrown in the gut, what's happening with the neurotransmitters. We can actually see that as well. So it's a really, and if what our levels of glutathione are like, so glutathione is the master antioxidant in the body. So you need that for your detoxification. And so we can see that through organic acids. The other test that I like to use is called complete microbiome mapping. So that's a stool test. So that is looking at what are the immune and the digestive markers? Is there any pathogenic bacteria? What's the good bacteria looking like? Are there viruses and parasites as well? So yes, the short answer, there are some really great tests, but they do cost a bit of money. Yeah, cool. And methylation is something that I'm pretty passionate about. I have the MTHFR gene and I actually got tested for this because I had high liver enzymes on blood tests and I didn't drink alcohol for a long period of time. And at that point in time, my doctor was curious as to what may have been impacting my liver enzymes. So I got some gene testing and I tested positive for the MTHFR gene, which is a gene mutation. So I think two genes, they mutate, and then you can get a mutated gene. It's quite funny for anyone that doesn't understand it. It's like people call it dirty genes. but People call it something else as well. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say that though. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very, very important metabolic process in the body. So it's a huge topic, but essentially methylation it's it's kind of the you consider it as the mechanism that allows all of the various systems to perform their functions so it occurs in all of the cells in all in the body so making all of these biochemical conversions and when methylation is optimal it has a significant impact on many biochemical reactions in the body that regulate you know your neurological system your reproductive system your detoxification systems, your cardiovascular, it's like the master controller. And But when there's disturbances in methylation, it has really big impact on all of these systems. So you could end up having issues with your neurotransmitter production, your energy levels, your histamine metabolism, eye health, aging, like the list is quite extensive. These pathways are complex 
but essentially it's about amino acids coming in through the diet, being able to access those amino acids from protein, specific cofactor vitamins and minerals, and they all come together. And I'm really simplifying this here because it's, it is very complex, but they create these things called methyls, these methyl groups. And what they do is they go around, they're distributed and they go around the body and they keep all the systems functioning as they should. So like yourself, many people may have heard of MTHFR, the gene, and its role is to convert folate. So folate is B9 and we get it from our good leafy greens in our diet. So the job of the MTHFR gene is to convert that folate, the dietary folate, into its active form, which is called 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate or 5-MTHFR or methylfolate. (laughs) It's got a few names. So if you have an issue with that gene that codes for that enzyme, it's going to cause you, potentially going to cause you issues. So what it means is it's defective. It's it's down-regulated. The gene is down-regulated. And so it's loss of function, blocks methylation, and that's when health issues can arrive. So all, essentially what people need to remember is if there's a down-regulation on the MTHFR gene, there's a loss of function and there's less methyls created. And that can impact. So for instance, with detoxification, if, you, if you're if you using up all of your methyls to try and detox lots of environmental toxins or whatever's going on for you, you're going to have less methyls to go on and create your neurotransmitters. So it has a knock-on effect. So yeah, like I said, it is a complex area. Yeah. And there's many different genes. Yeah. So I got my test through my doctor, but it's not a dead end. And that's what's so interesting about functional nutrition is understanding that I had MTHFR or understanding that you have certain genes or health issues, you can then go and work on your nutrition. So by adding in different vitamins that are specific to what you need to work on, you can really start to enhance your health and energy and get to a point where, you know, that Um, gene or that low detoxification or whatever symptoms you may be having aren't impacting you. So that's why nutrition and supplementation is so awesome and really important. Yes, that's it. And look, depending on um, your presentation, so depending on your um, what your gene SNP is, you may not have any loss of function you may, it's, you know, it's, it's, these variants can be common. It just depends what your presentation is. So there are, um, there's two variants that are looked at the most, there's lots on the MTHFR gene, but there's two that have had most of the research done on them. And depending on the percentage, whether you're a heterozygous or a homozygous, and that again is a huge topic to, to dive into, needs its own podcast, but it, it actually determines how much of a loss of function. So if you're a C677T homozygous, then you might have as much as 60 to 70% down regulation of that gene. So you are going to need support. You're going to need that nutritional support. You're going to need to make sure you're getting your good folate in through the diet and that you're actually able to convert it. So there's lots of different forms of folate and folic acid is a synthetic form of folate. So if you've got a diet that's got lots of folic acid in there, that's potentially going to block your uptake and your conversions of your folate because the the body will prefer the folic acid over the folate. And it's not just folate either. So there's other nutrients. If you're low in B12, 
B12 is going to, if you don't have B12, because that's part of the pathway too, if you don't have enough B12 to move the folate on to do what the pathway needs to do next, then you're going to have another block. So it's really, you need to work with somebody who understands methylation because you can't just give somebody methylfolate, for instance, because they might not be able to tolerate that and it will actually make their symptoms worse. If you give somebody the most active form of B9, that can make them feel worse. And that's often because they don't have enough B12 to move move it on in the pathway. So I've had that experience. Yeah, taking a very active form that was prescribed by someone that is brilliant in their field, but I guess they just were didn't know as much about my gene variant. And I was on an active form quite early on and I was getting some different symptoms. Yeah, so that's right. It's really important to work with someone that has experience and knowledge in your field or your if it's a gene or if it's your symptoms or your mental health. And I think just to say that MTHFR, it's only one gene. So you, you touched on that. It could be there's so many genes that could be having, you could be having an issue with. So it's, it's, it's a good, it's the one that's most people are most familiar with and it is a starting point. But, yes, it's a really complex, complex system. I was fortunate enough to have been mentored by Carolyn Ladowski and she's, Honestly, hands down, she's the world expert in MTHFR. She's a wealth of information on genetics and epigenetics and how all the SNPs can impact health. So, so it's lucky to get a lot, learn a lot from her. But yeah, it's a very, very complex area. Yeah. And I don't think gene testing is something everyone needs to run out and pay money to do. I feel like if you've got symptoms and you've worked through different things and you're not getting to a place where you're feeling your best or you're putting in time and effort and you feel like something's just not right, then that might be a good time for you to go get some gene testing. And I wanted to talk about brain neurotransmitters and how they relate to mood. So how can the food we eat impact our neurotransmitters? Okay, so transmitters are our brain chemicals, the neurotransmitters, and they transmit the impulses through the central nervous system and they have a huge impact on our mental health. So the neurotransmitters that we tr- tend to focus on with when we're dealing with mood issues is serotonin. So serotonin is your natural, happy, feeling good chemical. And if you feel depressed or you have poor sleep or you're craving carbohydrates, you could be low in serotonin. The amino acid that we get from our good dietary protein is tryptophan, and that is important for producing serotonin. So think about to get tryptophan, you're looking for sam- you know, beautiful salmon, turkey, pumpkin seeds, people who, aren't, who are vegan and, and not eating those foods, pumpkin seeds, nuts, they're really great sources of tryptophan, which will then convert on to being serotonin. The other neurotransmitter that I look at is GABA because GABA is our con- calming neurotransmitter and low levels of GABA are associated with anxiety. So just keeping your diet rich in cruciferous vegetables, which is things like broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, brown rice, they're all really good sources of GABA for that calming neurotransmitter. And then dopamine. And dopamine is associated, as you would know, and many people do, your reward and your re- your pleasure. So if that's low, we see very low mood and low motivation as well. So tyrosine is a great amino acid that converts on to be dopamine. And we get that again from the animal proteins, chicken, 
beef, turkey, eggs if you can tolerate it, legumes, sesame seeds. It's, it, yeah, you can get it from a lot of food sources and I, I find it's it's hard to remember all of the different food sources for people, which is why I try to encourage people just to take a balanced approach and not be restrictive in certain foods because to avoid being caught up in, oh, am I getting enough tryptophan or am I getting enough tyrosine? It's just eat a wide from a wide variety of foods and you, you'll be right. <laughs> when it comes to neurotransmitters, I've heard that some other supplements like magnesium, NAC, vitamin D and B12 can benefit our neurotransmitters. And can you dive into your favourite supplements and how these kind of work? I do love magnesium. Magnesium is an amazing, amazing mineral. It is involved in so many different reactions in the body and it's just wonderful. It's wonderfully calming. It's it's helps with muscle recovery, but it does help with your neurotransmitter production as well. It certainly plays a role in that methylation cycle that we were talking about. I, I also love zinc. I think many people are deficient in zinc and zinc plays, again, plays so many roles. If you think zinc, think. Zinc is very good for, for brain health. But also zinc is, uh, plays a role in stum- producing stomach acid. So if, you're, if you've got a great diet and you've got a lot of protein in that diet, you, if you're not able to access the nutrients from the protein from the food, you could be low in zinc. So zinc is a, is a, wonderful, um, a wonderful nutrient. I do love NAC, N-acetylcysteine, which is an antioxidant, and we talked about this earlier. NAC goes on to make glutathione, which is the master antioxidant in the body. So I do often use NAC, and NAC has been seen to have benefits in ADHD behaviours and symptoms, people with OCD as well. I've used NAC. I find that works quite well. I also love vitamin D. Vitamin D, we are very deficient in vitamin D. You see that all of the time. We want our levels to be much higher than they are because vitamin D is so important for immune function and for neurotransmitter synthesis as well. And I I can't go past B12. B12 is just so important and many people, again, are very low in B12. It's important for methylation, which impacts energy, of course. So I think they would probably be, I do like tyrosine as well. If someone has got low mood and low motivation, I'm thinking, okay, low dopamine, I will prescribe some tyrosine as well or try to get it from the diet. However, I have to say, if someone is very, very stressed, no matter how good their diet is, stress plays a huge role. So although they're trying to get it from their diet, if stress is is a problem, then supplementing that sort of targeted dose is going to is going to help. And when it comes to optimizing our absorption of nutrients, is there any kind of info you can give to listeners on that? Yes. So obviously if somebody has a good diet, we know that the nutrients are there. But if they're still experiencing symptoms, the way we can optimize the nutrients is looking at how they're absorbing them. You need good absorption to be able to take the nutrients in. So is there low stomach acid? 
Are they, are they low with their digestive enzymes? If we're not able to break down the food, then we're not absorbing those critical amino acids, the vitamins and minerals that are essential for the neurotransmitter production or conversion. So zinc, I've mentioned, that can help with stomach acid production because stomach acid does decrease as we age. If someone's taking PPIs for acid reflux to reduce the acid, then that can also be a problem with being able to absorb our nutrients. So looking at if they've got gas bloating, do they have undigested food in their stools? Then they're not really absorbing the nutrients. So it's looking at gut uh, permeability and stomach acids, digestive enzymes, that sort of thing. And when it comes to supplementation, is there any sort of pairing of supplementation and medication that people should be aware of? I think the best thing to remember with medication is always seek the advice of the person who has prescribed that medication to you. So if you're if you're working with a number of different practitioners, just to check with them, this is what I'm doing with my nutritionist or my naturopath. How do you see any interactions with my medication? And generally with nutrients, I can't speak for herbal medicine, but generally with nutrients, if you take them apart, so if you're going to have some vitamin C that might be degrading your histamine in the morning, you maybe take your medication later on in the day or vice versa, but always refer back to the person who's prescribed that medication to you. Yeah, great note. And when it comes to gluten or gluten intolerance, how can gluten affect our gut health? So with gluten, what gluten is really interesting actually because Gluten contains a protein called zonulin. So zonulin, the job of zonulin or what zonulin does is it will loosen the gap junctions in the gut wall, allowing this passage of food proteins into the bloodstream, which then can cause the inflammation and the neuroinflammation. It stirs up the immune system and the immune system mounts a a response to that. So with gluten, I often will say to people, come off gluten while we repair the gut so that we don't have that excessive permeability. The thing with gluten, it can stimulate the release of an opiate-like compound called gluteomorphin. And what this does, it's very addictive. And initially when you eat gluten, the same thing can happen with casein in dairy as well, is that initially you feel really good and you want to go back for more. But actually, after the fact, your mood drops and you feel a lot of fatigue. So for somebody who's having neurological issues, it can sometimes be a problem to have that gluten or the or the dairy that has the casein. So I often say, let's take it out while we work on the gut. And earlier on, you mentioned balanced eating and that kind of sparked my interest into intuitive eating. It's something that I'm passionate about. And what is intuitive eating for anyone that isn't aware? Intuitive eating, although it's been around for a while, I'm fairly, this. I've recently just done some some training in intuitive eating and it's really sparked a passion in me too actually. I'm very fascinated with intuitive eating but essentially what intuitive eating is, it's it's turning the attention inward. So it's listening out for your internal cues and the direct messages that are coming from your body and it's this principle of intuitive eating, which is called interoceptive awareness. So you're aware of what's going on, what your body's messages to you actually are. It's removing obstacles that may have been in place for a long time that are stopping you from being intuitive with yourself. So those rules, beliefs, thoughts around how you approach food. And that's that's just the first part of intuitive eating. 
but it's the way you respond. So it's your interoceptive awareness, but it's also your interoceptive responsiveness. So it's a fascinating area. It's, it's scary for some people because they've been so, it's challenging because they've been so caught up in diet culture, which is huge, and they don't value or trust their own intuition or their own messaging. So it's very difficult for people who've lived by rules and diet plans and it can become quite confusing. So it's, it's a skill to learn to eat intuitively. Yeah, definitely. And I've had my own experience with that. When I was younger, I did, uh, first off, I was vegetarian and then I was vegan and I was very balanced and eating intuitively when I was vegetarian and vegan. And then when I got interested in health, cut to a year or two later, I found myself vegan or like gluten-free and raw and can't have this. And then I was on keto. And then I got to a place where I had so many things, like so many conditionings and beliefs and something that I found beneficial was just taking note of things that I was afraid of eating or taking note of all these things in my head that rules and restrictions I'd put on myself, writing them down and then beginning to take a closer look at those and finding people that ate those, seeing how that they enjoyed those foods and then slowly starting to add those things back into my diet until it became like a normal part of my lifestyle. You know, I think if you're in a place where you are driven by diet culture or you have all these rules and regulations on yourself, it can be very difficult to just go and eat something that you've told yourself you can't have. Absolutely, 100%. And I think that for the work that I do dealing with, you know, often women and men, but often women who are so caught up in diet culture, it's they come to me about their mood and depression or anxiety, but and I'm not, obviously, I practice within my scope of practice. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counsellor. But it's all tied into food. It's all tied into food and mood. And so I will 100% support somebody who wants to be on a plan. I, if someone comes to me for weight management, if that's what they want to do, I will support them on that journey. But with what I've been learning, I like to try and teach or educate or just in or just present to somebody hey how about tapping into your intuition thinking about how is that going to without being the food police are you intuitively are you hungry and and you know using the, that in, internal dialogue to check in and find out how's that going to make you feel afterwards if you want to have the donut have the donut it's not going to have a huge detrimental impact on your health in that one moment but intuitively having that conversation with yourself and allow and, and not having the rules, just allowing you, okay, I want that. I'm feeling hungry. I'm going to eat. I have recently read a book. You may have read it, Is- Isabel. It's called Intuitive Eating and it's by Evelyn Triboli and I hope I said her name right, and Elise Resch. Yeah, I've read that one. And yeah, I really love their approach and they have 10 principles, which I think are fabulous. And I wanted to go through those principles because really it's, it is all about honoring your, one of the principle number two is honoring your hunger. So if you don't eat when you're hungry, then that desire to have that food is going to just grow and grow and grow. And then you're at risk of overeating or, and, and then you don't feel good afterwards. So it's, it's quite fascinating 
um, when you review the principles, their principles of intuitive eating. So the principles, they're quite detailed and I can certainly share the information with you that I have here, but I just wanted to read them to you. So the first is to reject the diet mentality, but the second principle is to honour your hunger. The third principle is to make peace with food. The fourth principle is to challenge the food police. The fifth principle is to respect your fullness. Number six is discover the satisfaction factor. Number seven is honour your feelings without using food. Number eight is respect your body. Number nine is exercise and feel the difference. And number 10 is honour your health. And there's so much in that. There's, There's so much that we could talk about. But I think even just the principles themselves speak volumes. Yeah, and I'll include the link to that book and the information for that book in the show notes. And when it comes to intuitive eating, personally for myself, uh, I start to tune into my body before I eat and I think about like what I really feel like, what my body's craving, if it's something like warm and grounding or if it's something light and cooling. So I just take that moment before I eat to think about what I feel like and what my body kind of is signaling to me it needs in that meal. And I guess that I believe that that also helps me to be able to eat and get all the different nutrients that my body's needing. Because if I'm craving a certain food, it's probably for a certain reason. And the more I can start to strengthen those, that wisdom, my body and my hunger's wisdom, the more I can eat intuitively and that intuitive eating has an impact on my health because I'm getting more foods that my body actually needs for whatever reason. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very powerful and I think having that gentle approach to your nu- nutrition, as you say, honouring your health, honouring your your hunger and remembering that you don't have to have the perfect diet. And I think that a lot of people they strive for that to have the perfect diet. It's a trap. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is a trap. It really is. And I think, you know, I myself, when I was younger, I struggled a lot with anxiety. And intuitively, back then, even though I didn't really know much about intuitive eating, I, I knew what made me feel good. But at times of stress, I didn't care. Or, well, there were other times I was the other extreme. I couldn't eat that because of how it was going to make me feel. And I just had this food police mentality, you know, you can, you can't, good, bad. But really fast forward to where I am now and the work that I do, it is about taking a balanced approach. It's about, you know, it's not about having the perfect diet or it's it's just about enjoying food because food is so much more than just nutrients in to make all of these you know we've talked a lot about the science and the pathways and what we need and how this but your approach and the way your relationship with food is very impactful as well so I think it's for me in what I'm doing I I really look forward to moving forward with intuitive eating to help my clients And, and you know when you are dealing with restrictive diets and low histamine and because you've got some health stuff going on I think that it it still can be used. You can still eat intuitively. Somebody who has a big histamine issue, you know, they really, really, really don't want to miss out on eating all that chocolate because they just love it. But they know it's going to, it's not going to serve them very well afterwards. So while you're working on that 
you know, healing your gut, doing all the good work to be able to tolerate histamines more, maybe it's a time to just think, well, intuitively, I know that's not going to help me, but I'm, I'm going to have a little bit because I'm not going to deny myself. So it's just having a better relationship with, with food, I think. Yeah, and intuitive eating is so liberating. I Like if I went back to when I had all those rules and restrictions, I just wouldn't be able to live like that when you feel the, the freedom and the liberation and the mood-enhancing benefits of having a positive relationship or just a balanced relationship with food just has such a bigger impact on yes. your health, your anxiety, your mood, your relationships. Because food's all about the experience of the food and the nourishment of the food. And when it comes to eating psychology cases, we have people come to us and if they are have been on a strict diet for a long period of time and they're very stressed, and often what we can do is put back in foods they love in smaller quantities, but it makes them relax and their stress chemistry goes down and then they start to feel more energized, more not as anxious, uh, in a calm mm. state. So then their digestion is firing and their mood's better and they can actually have then the weight loss that they've been trying to have because they're building like this positive nourishing environment inside themselves and that liberation with food. So I think that was really interesting. And Yeah, and I think, I think also accepting your genetic blueprint you know, who says we all have to be one way? Who says we have to all be? Of course, we want to be healthy. And if you've got, if you're, if, if you are struggling with, with weight, then, you know, you, and you've got health complications because of that, then that needs to be worked on. You need to work with someone and, 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 you know, move on from that. And I think that if having a balanced approach, it, it is better for your mental health. And you, we don't all have to be the one way. Our genetic blueprint is our genetic blueprint. As long as you're healthy and you're happy, then that's that's what's important. Magic, thank you. Thanks for sharing all this information today. And I'll include all the links to your website and social media in the show notes. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you today, Isabel. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you so much for being a part of this journey. If this podcast resonates with you, I would love your support. So please share, subscribe, or leave a five-star review. Don't forget, you can find all the detail and links for this episode in the show notes. You can connect with me via Instagram at Isabel Cornish or via my website, isabelcornish.life. For more uplifting content, I highly recommend checking out my book, The Why, Healthy Habits for an Epic Life. Thanks for listening. And remember... Stay magic.